If you were with us last week, and I apologize for my voice this morning, um, I spent a little too much time in the rain this week, and I've just been battling some congestion. Uh, your prayers have been much appreciated, those of you who knew. Um, we started last week uh, a series called Gospel Culture, and and I mentioned this last week, but I'm going to mention it again because I think it's something for us that's ridiculously important. Um, we as a church have really good gospel doctrine. Gospel doctrine is very easy to write down, put it on a paper, and sign your name, say, yes, I agree with that. But one of the things that's not as easy to grasp is how the gospel's doctrine influences our culture. And so we, uh, in, we mentioned a few different equations last week. The first was that gospel doctrine minus gospel culture equals hypocrisy. The second was gospel, doc, or gospel culture minus gospel doctrine equals fragility. But the third was gospel doctrine plus gospel culture equals power. And this morning what we're going to do is we're going to go back to that very first equation and just see from the scripture what it looks like when a church has glorious gospel doctrine. Um, but it doesn't translate into their culture. And so what we made an observation of last week was that there is nothing more relevant, compelling, or inviting than a church that portrays the beauty of Christ through the way they relate to one another in the world. And so first and foremost, we have to understand what is the gospel? Like, what do we mean when we say that? And, and we can nuance this all day, but for the purposes of our series, I think the thing that's most important for us to recognize today and for us throughout this series is the gospel is this, that we were enemies of the kingdom of God. Right? So we just talked about the fact that, that there is a coming kingdom one day of God's that will come and will make all things right and all things new. And as it stands right now, outside of Christ, we are enemies of that kingdom. But because of Christ, even though we were enemies, God purposed in eternity because of his love for us to send his son to die and then rise from the dead so that we might, by believing in him, take refuge in him. We were once enemies, but now we are united to the king and welcomed into his kingdom by grace alone where our citizenship in this kingdom is no longer sealed by our works or our abilities. It's sealed by the Spirit of God. And so we made this observation, our gospel has to be God-centered, right? God initiated the plan of salvation in God the Father. God the Son accomplished that salvation in Jesus' work on the cross. And the Spirit seals that salvation for us. We do not add anything to that. It is all God's work for us. And by believing in Christ through his finished work and the grace of God alone, do we have hope in the future. And so this morning, we want to go back to that original, that very first equation that we discussed last week is gospel doctrine minus gospel culture equals hypocrisy. So let's go ahead and read the text this morning. Galatians chapter 2. We'll be in verse 11 and, and we'll read through verse 21. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. 
for he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. Then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy, so that even Barnabas was led away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas in front of everyone, if you, who are a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And yet, because we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we ourselves have believed in Christ Jesus. This was so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. But if we ourselves are also found to be sinners while seeking to be justified by Christ, is Christ then a promoter of sin? Absolutely not. For if I rebuild those things that I tore down, I show myself to be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you that you have rescued us and that you have brought us into your kingdom of light, Lord. No longer in darkness, but now rescued. Help us, Lord, as we desire to honor you in this church, as we desire to see your glory made known in our city and from our city to this nation and from this nation to the world, Lord. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so I think the first question we have to ask is what in the world is happening in this church in Galatia? I mean, maybe you just read this and you're like, all right, I am super confused. I have no idea what a Gentile is, or I have no idea what a Jew is, which that one would be more confusing to me. But maybe you're reading and, and you're just like, man, I don't know what's happening here. Um, there was some weird things said there. Uh, so one of the things I want to do first is just talk a little bit about context. One of the things we see throughout the New Testament is there is a specific party of individuals that the New Testament cleverly names the circumcision party. Now, that sounds like a really uh, unfortunate party to me, but um, they, that's what they named them as. So the circumcision party uh, was a group of individuals who were native Jews who had become saved. They put their faith in Jesus Christ, but they believed, wrongfully so, that in order to be saved, you did not just have to believe in Jesus Christ, you had to also uphold the works of the law, including the law called circumcision. And so if you're a Gentile man, which means you're not a Jew, you would not have been circumcised in that time. And to not get too graphic, I'll just say it like this. You would have had to be circumcised, which was a very painful thing for a man in order to become a Christian. And so this was some of the things, the stipulations that they were putting on Gentiles. And 
and, and one of the things that comes out in, in some of Paul's other letters is that they weren't just saying you had to do this to be saved. You could be saved, but there was a higher class of Christian if you, were, uh, if you followed the law and did all of these things. So really, there's, there is still the Jew and the Gentile and the slave and the Greek. And, the, and so they would go down that list and they'd separate. And what Paul tries to communicate throughout the New Testament is no, like that's not how this works. Christians are not justified by their works. Christians are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And so this individual party, the circumcision party, had crept into the church in Galatia. And as they had crept into the church in Galatia, they, they began to change the, the minds of the believers, and the believers started to actually follow them. And so Paul sits down with a parchment paper and, and a pen, and he starts to write, and he starts with a very bold letter, O foolish Galatians. He, he quickly gets into the weeds with this church. It's actually one of the most abrupt entrances into a letter that we see from Paul. Usually we see like a chapter or two of unpacking the glorious riches of Christ, and then he tells you what this church is doing that needs addressing. But this one, it's so important that it seems to take place at the very beginning. So the people in the church, they started to believe this Paul's gospel. Paul writes a letter defending the true gospel. But what he does in this letter that's very unique is he begins by giving us his story, his testimony. Now, if you're not familiar with Paul, Paul was a, a Jew who was actually desiring to persecute and murder Christians because he said, hey, this is against the one true God. And as he's out on a mission to, to kill Christians, the Lord meets him on the road and blinds him. And it's in this moment as the Lord blinds him that Paul realizes like, oh my goodness, the Lord is real. And as he's blind, Ananias, uh, as a prophet at the time, that's called to come and give the word of the good news to Paul, and, and he does so, and, and the scales fall from Paul's eyes. He, he loses his blindness. He now regains his sight. And Paul then goes on after a, a period of time in the wilderness to become, I mean, the reason why we have most of our New Testament. I mean, he, the, the letters from Paul to the churches makes up most of the New Testament, and, and it's from that testimony that he's working from as somebody who was trying to kill Christians to somebody who was then so radically changed and transformed by the Lord that he couldn't help but defend the faith. And so Paul begins to tell us this story, and, and after he had met the Lord, um, he goes to Jerusalem and actually spends some time with the apostles, right? So the people who spent time with Jesus while he was on earth, like Paul goes and he meets with them because he's like, hey, look, I got to fact check my message with you. Like, this is what I feel like the Lord's told me. Is this actually what the gospel is? And they're all like, yeah, this is the gospel. And Paul actually says in Galatians that the apostles didn't add anything to him. So he didn't actually learn anything from them. He, he was taught by the Lord. And as he comes into this space and, and he preaches to them what he has been told, he then is commissioned by the apostles and by, really, God to the Gentile people, the non-Jews at the time. And so that's Paul's ministry. And when Paul is on mission, he's not preaching a gospel of, thou must become a Jew. He's preaching a gospel of, thou must have faith in Christ. He probably wasn't using the word thou, but anyway. 
So the apostles, they approved his message, and that's the same message that he brought to the church in Galatia. But then we see something happening in our text today. In our text, we see that this is a church that Paul had brought good gospel doctrine to. And a man named Cephas, which if we were to do a little bit of a word study on Cephas, we know that that's actually Peter, the apostle, the one who denied Jesus but then was also given the keys to, to Hades. You guys remember that moment in Scripture where he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus is like, surely on this rock I will build my church. And Peter actually becomes the, the focal, the, vo the voice for the church after Acts 2. And this is fascinating for us because here's Peter, the man who throughout the first 10 chapters of Acts is preaching sermons about justification by faith, which we're going to unpack the word justification in a minute. The man who's preaching those sermons is now coming into this church in Antioch. Okay, so that's a, that's a starting point. That's where we're at. So Paul tells a story of when Peter comes to Antioch, and, and Antioch, if we're not familiar, and I'm, I'm doing a lot of work here, but it's going to matter. So Paul is the pastor at this time of this story in the church of Antioch. Paul and a man named Barnabas are pastoring the church in Antioch. It's where they get sent out for their missions. But prior to that, they were there pastoring. Now, Paul is pastoring there, and Peter comes. And Peter is just enjoying the gospel ministry. He's hanging out with all the non-Jewish believers. He's having a great time. He's benefiting from the ministry that's there. They're probably eating some pork sandwiches, maybe a McRib here and there. And he's just really excited about what the Lord's doing in the Gentile people, which is important because Peter actually, in Acts chapter 10, is the very first apostle to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. So in Acts chapter 10, we see this moment where Peter has a vision and, and he sees all of these unclean foods that would have been unclean under Jewish law. <coughs> Excuse me. And the Lord tells him, take and eat. And Peter's like, I have never taken anything unclean. And the Lord says, do not call unclean what I have called clean. He wakes up from this dream and there's people coming that are saying, hey, there's a centurion, a Greek, a Gentile one who's not a Jew, who wants to believe in the Lord, he's sent for you. Will you come see him? <clears throat> and Paul goes, or Peter goes to see him, and he preaches the gospel and baptizes the household. And they're saved. Peter takes that message back to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem at the time, and he says, Look, they received the gospel. Not only did they receive the gospel, they were baptized. And not only were they baptized, but they received the promised Holy Spirit in the same way that we did. They're saved. And it was a good thing. And it was exciting because what Jesus talked about, making disciples of all nations, was now happening through the church. And so, Peter is this guy. This is who he is. The man who has experienced the power of the living God coming to Gentiles, coming to non-Jews, and he's excited about it. <coughs> so the circumcision party shows up. They show up in Galatia, or in Antioch, where Paul's at. They show up, and Peter, instead of standing up against these individuals saying, hey, it is not required that you fulfill the works of the law in order to be saved. It's only by faith in Christ. Instead of saying that, he does something. 
And this is really important for us to grasp from this text. We actually don't see Peter saying anything. But he retreats from the Gentiles, pulls away from the non-Jews, separates himself, and the text tells us for fear of the circumcision party. All right, I see some yawns, so I better make sure that I move this forward a little quick. So Paul sees this happen. He sees this happen, and he opposes him. He, he actually gets up to Peter, the apostle, and he says, hey, this is not okay. Let's ask why. Let's look at verse 11. Look at verse 11 with me. Because Peter stood condemned. Now this bears more weight for us in the context of the book of Galatians because what Paul is referencing here, what he stands condemned in, is preaching a different gospel which would make him cursed. Like the, the, the actual word is this person's a false teacher. So Paul is saying when he says he stood condemned that Peter's actions here were changing the gospel in such a way that led to him being a false teacher. So not only did Peter stand condemned, but we see from the text that all the other Jews in Antioch, including Barnabas, one of the pastors, was led astray by the hypocrisy of Peter. That's the word that's used, hypocrisy. So we see we've got a, a gospel doctrine, right? We've already uh, unpacked that. We believe that Peter believed that. We believe that Paul believed that. That's the gospel that Paul took to the church in Galatia. But somehow there's hypocrisy here. So what we have to assume is that there is somewhere in Peter's retreat that is denying the gospel. That's actually the words that Paul uses. He says that as the text tells us, they had deviated from the truth of the gospel. And so he confronts it. Now, I think an important observation for us to make is it was not the words that they spoke. Peter and the Jews in Antioch, they never, they never said anything here. All they did was going from eating at this table to eating at this table. All they did was retreat from the individuals and therefore putting up a dividing wall of hostility that Christ had already torn down. It was not their words, but their actions that denied the gospel. So the culture of the church in this moment, because of the actions of Peter and the actions of the other Jews, including Barnabas, had shifted. Their gospel doctrine was still the same, but for fear of man, they operated in a way that deviated from the truth of the gospel. And so Paul confronts Peter in front of everyone, and what Paul does for this throughout this text is he lays out for us beautiful gospel doctrine that's supposed to influence the way that they operate with one another. So like, like last week, let's ask the question, okay, where is the gospel doctrine in this passage? Look at verses 15 and 16 with me, if you will. I'm sorry about that, guys. I apologize. So gospel doctrine is this. 
in this passage. Verse 15 and 16, we are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And yet, because we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we ourselves have believed in Christ Jesus. This was so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. So the gospel doctrine here is this, that a person is not justified by birth or by their works, but only by faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only way to justification. So now let's ask the question, okay, what do you mean when you say justification? Justification means to be declared righteous. Or in the words of uh, Martin Luther, he says this, he says, by justification, we mean that we are redeemed from sin, death, and the devil, and are made partakers of life eternal, not by ourselves, but by help from without, by the only begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ. You see, what is made very clear in this text is something that all of us have to recognize as Christians. Christianity is not an inside-out religion. And what I, what I mean by that is every other religion will tell you that the problem exists outside of you. But Christianity makes this note that says, no, the problem is inside of you. You're the problem. And the solution can only be found outside of you in Christ. It's not a work that we have done towards salvation. We needed saving, and so we are saved by God. But we're not just saved to be off on our own. We're saved to be brought into his kingdom. And justification means that we now have legal standing in God's kingdom as that of a justified citizen. We don't we're not as a sinner outside of God's kingdom and then transplanted, transplanted into God's kingdom, but all our sins are still held against us. No, we are sinners transplanted into God's kingdom by the work of Jesus Christ, righteous. Now, I cannot state how important this is for us. The belief of justification by faith in Christ is not just moral neutrality. It doesn't mean you get a blank slate and now we get to start all over. No, it's a clean, washed, redeemed, justified forever. But why? Like, if, if it's just a blank slate, right, you and I are probably just going to pile up our sins again. That's what's going to happen, if you didn't know. But the actual justification that's happening here is not that we're getting a clean slate. It's that we're getting the righteousness of Christ. When we have faith in Christ, his righteousness, which was perfect, now becomes ours. And when you believe in Christ, you are now looked upon in God's eyes as righteous, justified by faith in Christ. So when we say justified, we don't mean you're just now morally neutral and you better keep your act together. What we mean is that Christ has obliterated your sin and you are now defined by his righteousness alone. 
That's really good news for us. But one of the things that we have to recognize from this text is that the way that Peter had acted implied to this church that the way to justification, the way to right standing with God, the way to salvation was not God's work in Christ, but was instead only partially God and then mostly us. You see, his removal from the Gentiles communicated something to them that they were not good enough until they had done enough. And what Paul's going to tell us later is that this is, this is actually denying the gospel. So Paul comes out strong against this idea, right? We see things like in this text, by works, no human being will be justified. And then he says something that should shock all of us at the end of the passage. If through the works of the law, if through works Christ Righteousness comes, then Christ died for nothing. So if this is our belief, that the way that we are made right with God is only partially through God and then mostly by our works, we actually are denying the crucifixion of Christ in Paul's eyes. Christ died for nothing if that's the case. So what Peter had done by his action was he had set aside the grace of God. He had set up a dividing wall of hostility that Christ had torn down and that then Peter had proceeded to preach. <clears throat> and his actions here led not only him into hypocrisy, but also led the church into legalism and into transgression. Peter's actions were not a denial in word of his gospel doctrine, but it did deny gospel culture the way that the gospel was supposed to influence the church. <clears throat> and so Paul's solution to this problem <clears throat> is found in the grace of God. Peter's gospel culture had denied the gospel doctrine. It led to hypocrisy in the life of the church. But Paul's solution to this is to point to Christ. He says in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So whoever Paul once was, whoever the Jews were, once were, whoever the Gentiles once were, that died on the cross with Christ. That was not something that was still true of them afterwards. That person died on the cross. And then he goes into what? Christ lives in me. Now we are defined by the righteousness of Christ. So we're no longer Jew, Gentile, slave, free. We're no longer Austin, Kevin, Chris, Vinny. We're Christ who lives in us. That is our truest identity. The old me, the sinner me, died on the cross with Christ. I am now justified in his righteousness alone. The life we now live here in the flesh, we don't live by our works anymore. We live by faith in the Spirit or in the Son of God. And then the text tells us this who loved me and gave himself up for me. Friends, listen close. 
if you have been united to Christ in his death and in his resurrection, this is true of you, that he loved you and he gave himself up for you and he did not die for nothing. He died for your justification, your righteousness, your future, and your hope. And that means that if this is true of you, that you are now welcomed into his kingdom because of his love for you, not because of your works and not because of the things you have done. when we forget this truth and when we add to the gospel, even by our actions, we stand condemned. When we believe that the gospel is death and resurrection with Christ plus whatever you want to add to that, we stand condemned. We deviate from the truth of the gospel. Justification in the eyes of God is by faith in Christ alone and that is it. And when we deny that, we deny Christ. He died for nothing. Now, there are objections to this, as always, as most people have objections to things. But what about when this person sins? Well, Paul would say later on in Galatians, that the proper response to the gospel is spirit indwelling, which leads to a new life in Christ. And so I think we have to ask ourselves, like, hey, do, do I feel the power of the spirit in me that's helping me overcome sin? Do I, do I desire to confess my sin? Do I desire to actually rid myself of this sin? It doesn't mean we walk in perfection, but it does mean that if we believe this is true, that Christ now lives in me, then the result will be a disgust at our own sin. <coughs> but what we cannot move past, what we can never move past, is that that is not what saves us. What saves us is Christ. What saves us is not our work. <coughs> And so I think we have to ask the question, like, how do we know? How do we know in our church if our church has a culture that actually uplifts the justification of faith alone in Christ? Like, how do we know if that's the culture of our church? How do we know if that's what we exist as? Or are, are we denying this culture? Are we denying this doctrine by the way that we live? A few months ago, my son was learning how to walk. And if you have kids and you <clears throat> experience them learning how to walk, they're not really good at it at first. <laughs> but they're trying. Now, the worst thing that I could do as a father in that moment is shame my son every time he fell. So this one moment happened where my son was walking and... and he walks and he'd fall and, and he actually got really good at catching himself. So like he'd catch himself and then he'd get back up and he'd try again. But one time um, he was walking and I don't know if his hands just didn't make it in front of him, but he just went face first right into the floor. And, and his response 
was not one of shame and let me run from my father now, but it was instead he crawled faster than I've ever seen him crawl into my arms because he knew that that was the safe place to recover from his fall. He's not hiding in a corner feeling ashamed or feeling as if he disappointed his dad. And I think this is the question that we have to ask. Is this how we respond when one of our brothers and sisters falls? When one of our brothers and sisters stumble, do we respond by encouraging them to run to their father, encouraging them to run to God? Like, do they feel safe to confess their sin, to turn in repentance, knowing that they will get a dose of gospel goodness from our church? Or do we separate ourselves from them? Do we wait until they've figured it out? Or do we point them away from self and towards Christ? Point to his righteousness poured on the cross for their sins? Or is our response one of shame and condemnation? This is, this is something that I think is really important for the church to get. And one of the things that, if I'm honest with you, I have not experienced much in the church my entire life growing up. When I fell, it was often riddled with, well, you better get your act together. Otherwise, God's not going to love you anymore. Or it was, well, we thought he was saved. Or it was unspoken in the culture, in the way that we responded to people who seemed to have it all together, in the way that we responded to people who didn't. See, the people that had it all together, they must understand Christ. People that don't, well, they must just not have surrendered to the Lord yet. And I'm not saying that there might not be truth in some of those situations. But when we do not, first and foremost, point to the glory of God and encourage people when they have fallen to run to him, then, then we're actually in danger of deviating from the truth of the gospel. Leslie Newbegin um, says this. He says, the church is not an organization of spiritual giants. It is broken men and women who can lead others to the cross. We, we are not an organization of spiritual giants. Now, do I desire that every single one of us would grow and would become stronger in our faith? Absolutely. Like, my, my goal for each and every one of us, my goal for myself is that I would look more like Christ that you would look more like Christ. I desire that for you. But the way to do that is not to paint a picture of what we think Christ looks like in the Christian life. The, the, the desire, the way to do that is to point people to the cross, point people to Jesus, point people to his life, his death, his resurrection, and remind them that this is now true of you if you are in Christ. That doesn't mean we might need, not need some practical tools. We might, but the, the power for that change, the thing that we need to point to is Christ. And when we shift from that, when we shift to something else, some other message of human improvement, of self-improvement, 
when people fall in sin, and, and I'm not excited when people fall in sin. I'm not. But my desire is not to shame them, but to point them to Jesus. Reveal to them how he has covered their sin, how he has justified them. And then to remind them that he lives in them. And he will give them the power to overcome this. But to separate is to deny the gospel and to, to deny that we were saved in the same way. So let's be a culture of people who understands our brokenness, understands our needs for Christ, and points others to the cross. And so maybe you're in here this morning and you're like, Austin, this is just never what I've heard. Like, I don't, I don't see that. I, I just, I've never heard this. I've never experienced this in a church. And honestly, in my own life, I've, I've never felt like when I sin, I can run to the cross. I've always felt like I have, to, I have to get it together. And so I think a question I have to ask is, like, how do we know that we personally understand the gospel? Like, as believers, how do we know when we are actually leaning into the truths of the gospel? And I think we'll see it when we fall. Is our response to go into hiding or to, to run from the body? Or is our response to look to Jesus, to run to the Father, to run back into the arms of community and say, help me. And are we here creating a safe space for people to do that? If you are in this room and you don't know Christ, maybe this is the first time you have ever heard this. You're like, this is not what I thought church was. You, you didn't know that this level of relationship with God was possible. To be known as righteous with God, isn't, you didn't know that was available to you. Maybe this wasn't the picture you've experienced of the church, or maybe even your own father had you believing things that weren't true about God the Father. And it's affected the way you respond to God. It's influenced the way you look at the church. And, and my first reaction is, man, I'm so sorry that you have never been presented with the beauty of Christ for you. And my, my second question is this, would, would you be willing to allow the gospel to shatter your preconceived notions of who God is? And would you invite him to reveal to you the justification that is found in Christ and Christ alone? You are on the cusp of eternity. And Christ is available for you. Justification with God is available to you. Just believe. And for those of you in this room who are Christians and you're hearing this and you struggle to believe these truths, you struggle to see how, how this could possibly true, be true about God. Read to yourself Galatians 3.20. Pour over that. Or Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. 
The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as a church we would not deny the truth of the gospel by the ways in which we relate to one another. We pray that you would help us as a church, Lord, to walk in the truth of that gospel, Lord, in our victory over sin as you have defeated sin. We are no longer dead in that sin, but we are alive to God. Help us, Lord, to see maybe some of the areas where we have deviated from the truth. And we have put up dividing walls of hostility that are things you've torn down, Lord. Lord, help us to believe the truth that we are justified and made righteous in the eyes of God because of God, because of you. Remind us. Remind us of the truth that you loved us and you gave yourself up for us. It is no longer us who live, but Christ who lives in us. Help us to walk that out, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.